Well, hello and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast powered by Alex on Autos. I'm here with Alex Dykes and I am Tim Masso. Alex, what's on the agenda for today? We've got a lot of ground to cover. We do. So the first thing we should talk about is the all-new Civic Type R. This is the second generation of Type R that's come to the United States, but not the first or not the second generation worldwide, I should say. So uh, let's bring on Brian. And uh, Brian was able to attend the launch of the Civic Type R. And he's going to tell us everything that we need to know. That's right. So yeah, I was present at the, it was at the Hawthorne Airport, uh, just outside uh, LA, and they only had three cars on site for us. They didn't really tell us too much in terms of specs, uh, but as you all have probably seen by now, uh, think Civic Hatchback with a big wing on the back, some updated, you know, fascias in the front and rear, uh, we've got 19-inch wheels. I think the old one had 20-inchers, so we've actually gone down wheel size. Uh, but it's got Michelin Pilot Sport 4S tires. They're 265 wide. Wow. Uh, so they're pretty wide, pretty going to be very grippy, obviously. Uh, we only know of a six-speed manual transmission. That was kind of expected. No automatic mm-hmm. is going to be available. Uh, and at the time, we didn't know horsepower. But today, actually, a leak came out about what is expected to be the horsepower figures for the Japanese market version. And that Do number tell. was 325 and I believe 310 for the torque. Um and I think if you line that up with the current uh, variation between Japanese and American, uh, you should look at you should expect something more like 310 to 315 in terms of horsepower here, because I believe we do get mm-hmm. a little bit you know less in terms of horsepower compared to what they get. Uh, so 325 for them is pretty good. That's obviously a, a, a jump over the old one. That's what we were expecting. And they did say this is the most powerful uh, Honda branded vehicle ever produced. So that. That all adds up to me, and that's a pretty big number, but that's not as much as the new Golf R. I think that gets or makes 328 horsepower. Uh, yeah, but yeah. it's it's all-wheel drive, of course. And it's so, all-wheel uh, drive. So right. hang on. So about that statement, so most powerful Honda-branded vehicle ever, are they forgetting that NSX is branded as a Honda vehicle in places? Well, I guess that was the North American markets. Okay, uh, North statement. American. Okay, yeah, got it, got yeah. it. Because <laughs> yeah, NSX has always been accurate here. So um, got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so what did you think of the what did you think of the look? Do you think it's it's too uh, too grown up? Not grown up enough? I think it's a, a good middle ground because the old one to me had too even the old just hatchback in general. Uh, it had too much sort of fake air vents and body cladding, not body cladding, but uh, just weird elements near the bottom and the bumper that. Uh, detracted from the overall design for me. And this version, obviously, based on the regular new Civic hatchback, it's definitely smoother looking, um, definitely more mature. Uh, The wing is still big and actually looks a little bit less, I don't know, the integration of the wing is, it looks more aftermarket. And potentially that's because they they want buyers to be able to uh, swap it out for something else a little bit easier. Maybe that was something that Mm -hmm. they heard from customers a lot that they wanted to be able to do that. And so it looks, uh, at first glance, even in person, it looks like you could probably more easily unscrew it, uh, you know, take it off and put a new one on there. I think the old wing looked better, even though they were both pretty outlandish, not outlandish, but, you know, they're, they're both boy racer looking in terms of just how big and uh, obnoxious, if you will, they looked. So, I mean, if you like that, that's it's still a big wing uh, and you can now possibly uh, swap it even easier than you could before if that's something you want to do as well. Uh, the interior is the new Civic interior, just with red seats up front and red mm-hmm. seat belts in the back. Uh, and then this was something I'm not sure. I, I would have to sit in a touring Civic back to back with the Civic Type R because I believe the instrument cluster in the Type R 
it is a full LCD instrument cluster, but it doesn't, mm -hmm. it actually, it seems to be slightly bigger. It seems to take up more of the actual uh, space you have in the instrument cluster, uh, just the binnacle itself, uh, that the regular Civic seems to have more of a space around the screen that separates mm -hmm. it from the, the uh, covering. I'd have to look at them back to back and see it again, but it seemed a little bit bigger. And uh, it did have a pretty cool sport gauge uh, when you press the new plus R drive mode it sort of takes you into its own separate uh drive mode with a unique screen kind of like uh well i'm trying to think of an example yeah like the new hyundai elantra n and the kona n if you put them in n mode uh you get a n specific screen with a big central tachometer this wasn't a circular uh, tachometer it was more like what you get in uh audi rs models where it kind of veers up and goes horizontally that kind of tachometer look it looks pretty cool. Um, and the rest interior, yeah, again, it's got that horizontal design uh, with the same little mesh uh, pattern to the grill covers of the, uh, uh, where the little toggle switches for the air conditioning vents are. It looks pretty good. Uh, and this, the, the manual transmission shifter is, I think, the same exact design as the old one. Uh, somebody can oh. correct me if I'm wrong about that. But So the real question is, uh, are you going to trade in your Veloster for a Civic Type R? I would have to wait and see how the GR Corolla turns out first, because that is also a very exciting hot hatch coming up. Mm -hmm. And that one will have all wheel drive as well. And it will be a manual transmission. So yep. it's, you know, and if knows, you are might... interested in that for viewers, it is going to be uh, we're going to be driving that at the end of the month. So be mm -hmm. sure and stay tuned, subscribe to the main channel, and uh, you'll see all those drive impressions probably before the end of August. Yeah, yep, I'm looking forward to that. And I think we're also driving the manual Supra there as well. So that'll that be true. cool. Yep. Lots of manuals. Yeah, a lot of manuals. And it's 2022, so that's always nice, you know. I will throw in most sources agree that this is probably going to start at about five to $6,000 less than a Golf R. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously a huge delta in terms of feature mm -hmm. set, one being all-wheel drive and one being very beastly front-wheel driver. Uh, the right. previous generation dual axis strut suspension did mostly counter the torque steer, um, but still, you are going to undercut the Golf by likely $5,000 in the final iteration here, and that will be a factor for some, especially those who do want to go to track days, even if they yeah. don't have the car. Money for a track day budget um, favors yep. the Honda. I would, I would normally have been right there on board with you. I will say, though, that you can bet dealer markups are going to be way oh, higher yeah, on the yeah. Civic Type R. So I'm going to guess that that entire Delta is going to be eaten up by dealer markup. Um, yeah. I've always been blown away by, by Honda's absolute insistence that they want to make this some sort of limited production run thing. They claim they don't want to flood the market with Type R's. The uh, unintended consequence is those absolutely enormous dealer markups. The last... Type R that I drove was one of the very last limited edition Type R's that was the ultra lightweight model. And the local dealers around me that had them were asking 20 grand on the hood yeah. extra. And that was pre, you know, like right at the beginning of the pandemic. I shouldn't say pre-pandemic. It was right when the entire car market was cratering into the earth and there wasn't a markup on anything except a Type R. <laughs> Good wow. point. Good point. Well taken. Yeah, well, I look forward to driving it. And they said it will be going on sale here, I believe, in the fall. So, yep. you know, we should be driving it or getting the opportunity to take a closer look at it very soon, I would assume. Um, so that, that'll be exciting. Here's a Stay question. Stay tuned. Question. So build on that last point. Bigger dealer markup. 
GR Corolla or Civic Type R? Oh, I'm going to bet Civic Type R. What's your bet, Brian? I don't know, because this will be, you know, the GR Corolla will be new, a new model. First time we've gotten anything like this really here. Uh, Civic Type R had its first go around already. Um, I have a feeling the demand for Corolla might be higher. I don't know. But that doesn't mean the markups will be more. But yeah, I don't know. Generally speaking, Toyota dealers have not been as bloodthirsty shall we say as as honda dealers okay. like supra when supra landed not much of a markup which i was surprised by mm. um definitely decent markups on toyota primes but sure. not as high as uh as we ever saw on type r so i'm curious and and of course toyota has been reluctant to say that they're going to be limiting production right in much of a way other than the, the limited edition core was what they call it core model or whatever the thing with the carbon fiber roof is that thing's going to be limited. They haven't said anything about the others. I, I think if I could just add, I think there's going to be two different levels. I think anything that's a civic with a type R badge is going to get a bigger markup than a Toyota with the exception of the Morizo limited edition GR right. Corolla. That's I the one. Yeah. That would be in a class by itself. Yeah, I, I think I suspect some of it is going to be just history as well. I mean, there's there's no GR Corolla long term, long time right. standing, et cetera. There's no gray market GR Corolla imports coming from Japan yeah. that are idolized like there are with Civic Type R with that six generations of, of Type R-ness. Right, right. We'll have to see. What do you think the actual like markups aside? Do you think GR Corolla is going to. Well, I mean, we don't know Type R pricing yet, of course, but like. Mm-hmm. Based on what we can deduce from current pricing of Civic Type R and current Golf R pricing and even GTI pricing, do we think Gorolla is going to come at under? I, I assume it's going to come under Golf R, but do you think it's going to be super far under? I don't know. Like it's it's going to be interesting. I'm going to jump out on a limb and say that my my personal just you know stab in the dark is that Jer Corolla is going to be shockingly inexpensive. Really? Okay. Because I I would think there's going to be, I'm going to guess there's a significant price delta between the Morizo and like the core. You've got the core, Mm -hmm. you've got the circuit, and then you've got the scooped out no rear seat Morizo. And I think there could be up to eight, nine, even $10,000 price difference between those. And that's without the markup. So I think there could be quite a range there for people. That wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Some people are going to want the power of the GR and almost nothing else. And there's going to be an entry level price for them. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm assuming that again, wild supposition. I'm assuming that the GR Corolla is really going to take the place of STI uh, and WR, really and WRX. To be honest, both in in certain circles because it it seems to be that that cheap, cheerful, small, easily chuckable all wheel drive thing that the STI just isn't anymore, and the STI is not hatched, of course, anymore either. So. There's that. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely true. I don't think anyone expected the next STI would be made by Toyota, but mm-hmm. almost exactly the time Subaru gave us the bad news, we saw the GR Corolla. And yeah. I have to wonder whether Toyota timed that because it would have known. Like it I known don't think gone. so. Uh, but I will say that I, also another indication that the Corolla is going to be sold in higher volume and to a broader audience set is it's probably going to have an automatic oh. because we know that Yaris GR Yaris 
is going to get an automatic. Yep. And uh, GR Yaris is going to get a performance version of the eight-speed automatic transmission that Ison's had for a while. You can bet that the Corolla is going to get it because it fits. Yeah, I can see that. And then that would leave Civic Type R being the only one you can't get an mm-hmm. automatic with anymore. So. And Honda is dead set on the whole manual purity. Like, you know, Type yeah. R must have a manual. It's impure to think otherwise. Impure thoughts will always get you. Um, yeah. And uh, and it, it, it blows my mind. But at the same time, it also gives it a sense of of rarity and and unattainability in a way, because even if you drive a manual, I wouldn't buy a Type R because I just could not live in that world anymore. I had too many manual transmission vehicles. I spent a lot of time in my 20s and 30s sitting in traffic with a six speed. And I, as much fun as they are, I wouldn't do it again as a daily driver. So it really limits the audience even beyond people that that know how to drive a manual to this core that's dedicated to it. And I think that adds to its its mystique, its exclusivity, and its price tag. Yeah, they wanted it to be known as a man eater. I mean, they've made it they've made it damn hard to get like an enthusiast transmission in the new Integra. So they better kind of do their penance on like this the type R side of things. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that there's sort of like a cool factor there. Ford tried to probe this with the Focus RS, where they tried to make the manual approachable. Remember how you could you could restart it just by pushing the clutch. Mm-hmm. Assuming mm-hmm. you're going to stall the thing a million times. I thought you were going to make a, a, a Ford probe, po- uh, you know, joke there for just a second. No, we're not just there. We're not. <laughs> later in the, later in the broadcast. It's still time. <laughs> uh, we haven't had enough. We haven't had enough just yet. Ford Ford decided to probe it, but then they really focused on it ah, <laughs> at the Fiesta. Ford their options. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think that. It's interesting to me that we only ever get these Civic Type R's. Here's Honda, a company that frankly has an incredible history in motorsports. The the history that Toyota couldn't buy with their multiple consecutive uncontested Le Mans. <laughs> I mean, like Honda really has that heritage in Formula One, in sports car racing, all over the place. And we hardly ever get their best stuff. I don't get their product planning, frankly. I understand they're trying to hit the meat of the market, but when a hatchback can be a halo car, why not just give us everything? Yeah, I mean, their lineup is a little funky worldwide, admittedly. I can't think of too much else that would really squish well into the American market performance-wise. And Honda's trouble, in a way, perform with performance has been they, they steadfastly refuse to develop a rear-wheel drive platform for anything other than an NSX. And then they won't use that on anything else. And I know it's heresy, but you know what really would have sold well is a four-door NSX. Stretch that puppy, put some back doors on it, call it the NSX Panamera. They would have sold far more of them than they actually sold two-door NSXs. But there's that purity argument that Honda just steadfastly wants to stick with. You know, in the era of twin turbo V6s, when a Maserati MC20 can be a supercar with a turboed six, why doesn't Acura have like type R's all over the place? Like, why can't you get basically the NSX engine in like IMSA spec in some sort of like an all wheel drive, you know, midsize sedan? It would be absolutely nutty. Use like a clutch vectoring system and, and just go crazy. I don't understand it. Honda. I mean, there are there are some practical realities. This is that platform problem. No rear wheel drive platform means you are very limited with front wheel drive performance. Um, you know, that, 
that might be a great segue to the uh, Audi RS3. That's true. We can we can we can segue there. Sashay away. All right. Good stuff. Goodbye. Okay. All right, Brian. See you later. See you. Insanity in the form of a 5941 front-to-rear weight distribution, five cylinders, and turbocharging. Alex, tell us about the new Audi RS3. It is fantastic. I have to admit, 51% of the weight on the front axle is pretty darn good. I mean, take a look at a BMW M340i, a Mercedes C53, something like that, or C4, uh, C43 E53. They've got about 51% of the weight on the front. So this is a particularly good achievement to have a transverse engine up front and not be 60% weight balanced. But I have to admit, RS3 is absolutely totally bonkers. And it is probably the best thing that I have driven in not just this year, but years. It is so much fun, so chuckable. If you're the kind of person that gets carsick when you're in the passenger seat and someone's driving hard, but usually not in the driver's seat... Drive the RS3 as hard as you want, and you will probably make yourself sick driving the car. Um, And there are very few number of vehicles that has ever been able to cross that threshold for me. And the RS3 is one of them because you can just drive it so hard. And it's so easy to drive, which is the funny part. It doesn't really hold the road like an M3 or a C63 necessarily. It doesn't have that feel but it's approachable enough that you can be at nine tenths all day long and you know where it is, you know how to get there so easily. And it's more fun to explore its limits at that with that kind of capability than something more powerful. And I would probably buy it over. I mean, any other performance vehicle that I can think of under a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. I mean, first of all, there's the heritage when you're talking about Audi, all-wheel drive, turbocharged, five-cylinder, you immediately realize this is the modern descendant of the original Sport Quattro, the first Mm -hmm. Audi Quattro Sport product. Um, And it's just bonkers. Yes, there are faster cars, both on paper and in reality, and there are better balanced cars, but between the sound it makes and the sensation, I owned the original TTRS, which was good, but that was <laughs> that was an iron block up front. It had a viscous coupling Haldex-based all-wheel drive system. Now you get a clutch pack-based vectoring system on the rear axle. Uh, tell yep. us a little bit about that. Yeah, so let's go over the mechanicals of the RS3 because it really is a peculiar bird. So it manages to be nearly perfectly balanced weight-wise, but it still has a transverse engine just like every other A3. It's a front-wheel drive-based platform. Up front has a five-cylinder engine, which is all kinds of funky, but quite logical when you think about it. The Germans long ago decided that half a liter per cylinder is this really efficient uh, volume and displacement per cylinder. So if you've got four cylinders, that's two liters. If you've got five cylinders, that's two and a half. And if you've got six cylinders, that's a three liter engine. It's also why Germans have four liter V8s. They build on this half a liter block thing. So five cylinder engines are the first four stroke combustion engine where there is power cycle overlap. You think about it, when you crank the the crankshaft of vehicle, you have one power stroke, next power stroke, next power stroke. This is the first time where there's overlap between these power strokes. It really smooths out the power delivery, but they're smaller, lighter, and 
and easier to package than an inline six, especially in a front wheel drive vehicle, which is exactly why Volvo lived and died on five cylinder engines for decades. Uh, Volvo was probably the most prolific builder of five cylinder engines, even though we often associate them with Audi and with Mercedes, Volvo built a bazillion of them. Oddly enough, General Motors did too in a Hummer, but that's a tale for a different story. And then it's connected to a dual clutch automatic transmission because the engine produces 400 horsepower. And the only way to harness this much power in a transverse platform package is with a dual clutch transmission. There's simply no automatic transmission that can handle that kind of power and will fit in the space. Then next to that, we have the power takeoff unit that sends power to the rear axle. The rear axle is driven slightly faster than the front, although Audi won't give us exact specifications. It's probably somewhere around 3% faster than the front wheels. There's a clutch connecting the front to the back, and then in the back, there are clutches on each side. So the system can direct engine power to a single rear wheel, and that single rear wheel is then spinning probably about 3% faster than the front wheels, giving it this effect of being able to steer the car around in the corner. But because it's so well balanced weight-wise and still a little bit front heavy, you could put your foot in it, get this yaw motion on the rear where the rear end feels like it's stepping out. But the moment you take your foot off the power, things don't go wrong. It just tucks right back into place and goes back to a, a natural sort of understeer situation. It's insanely mild mannered, but also so much fun at the same time. And it's interesting to look at some of the tricks that they used to make it feel a little bit more neutral or even kick the rear out a bit. Uh, the front track is 2.7 inches wider than the back, which is crazy. Um, the front tires are crazy wide. Yes, they are. <laughs> it's got this torque splitter. Um, now, you're going to split 50-50 front to back, but 100% of the torque that does go to the back can be vectored to either of the rear wheels. And it's a clutch pack system, so unlike the Haldex, which requires you know, the kind of delayed response of a viscous coupling. Here, it's instantaneous. It really will kick itself around if you want it to. And you do have some mode control regarding how the system works. Yes. And what's interesting and different about the RS3's all-wheel drive system is that in a normal, one would say, quote-unquote, normal all-wheel drive system, this is the vast majority of transverse engine vehicles. You connect the clutch pack to the rear axle. You can send 50% of the power to the rear without the front wheel slipping. The only time you can send more is if the front wheels are doing nothing, at least one front wheel slipping, then more power can get sent to the rear. Now, there are some oblique situations where at particular steering angles and speeds, et cetera, maybe a bit more can go to the rear, but generally 50% is tops. However, with super handling all-wheel drive from Acura, you can send more to the rear axle. And that's basically what's going on with the RS3. Although again, Audi's not giving us too many specifics on how much power can go to the rear. But because you can make the rear wheel spin faster than the front, even when that clutch pack is completely connected, the effect is more power on the rear than the front. So it is a weird thing that the RS3 is one of the few transverse engine vehicles that can have a rear power bias at times, and then, of course, can then send that slight rear power bias to one of those single wheels. And it's a I mean, it is a small car like this is going to be in terms of handling dynamics. It's going to be like the hottest hot hatch you've ever driven. Um, it will be very similar to I mean, it, it would be great to have this engine in a Golf R. That's never going to happen. I'm going to skip that thought. But <laughs> you can imagine such a thing. Uh, that's exactly what it would be like. And yep. they're really leaning into the performance here. Uh, for a relatively reasonable $450, you can get Pirelli uh, P0 Trofeo R Ultra 
off like gumball summer rubber. So they're making ways mm -hmm. to take that $60,000 base price and escalate. Like it starts, yeah. it gets scalding. It, uh, it, but the fun part about it, and what I like about the RS3 is that the vast majority of the options are cosmetic. There's the optics package and the blackout this and the blackout that. Other than the summer tires, I probably wouldn't get any of the options on the RS3. And I think that you should, probably shouldn't either. <laughs> I, I will say this. Audi exclusive has the cheapest paint to sample custom color in the business. If you look at what Porsche charges you for those two gallons of custom paint, uh, and then you look at what Audi charges, advantage Audi. So keep that in mind. On a car like this, that's in play. For $5,500, they will raise the top speed from 155 to 180. I would be terrified to drive this car, given its shape and its size at 180, so skip. Um, but Kailami Green, just implanting the seed of the thought. Um, <laughs> it's cool. If, if you ever wanted Viper Green, um, it is that, but less metallic. I would say, if you're worried that it's too small, it's about the same size or bigger than a BMW 3 Series from 20 years ago. That's a good point. It's 103 inches in wheelbase, approximately, and 178 in length. And mm -hmm. especially if you go back to the 80s and you look at like the old 318, uh, this is bigger than that. This is like the 90s 3 Series that you yeah. remember. Back in the 90s, when you could buy a four-door E36 M3, this is like that in size. And because it's a front-wheel drive-based platform, it has a bigger trunk and a bigger back seat than most, but not all, but most of the compact luxury class. So even though it's a subcompact in the U.S., on the inside, it's not really much of a compromise, if at all, versus a 3 Series or a C-Class or a, you know whatever, insert your midsize thing or compact thing here. And there's actually one other change that I should have mentioned a little bit earlier, but my old TTRS and the first RS3 that we got here in the United States had Magnaride. And the suspension modes were, they were shuffled basically by changing the viscosity of the material in the shock tubes. Mm -hmm. Now they've gone to something of an older technology with variable valving where the viscosity of the material doesn't change, but the valve restriction does. And while it doesn't give you maybe the same instantaneous response, it does yield a more balanced ride. By all accounts, this is a more livable dual mode suspension. Yeah, the ride quality is pretty decent in the RS3. It's one of the benefits of it being lighter, too. It's significantly lighter than something like an M340i. So when the vehicle is lighter, you don't need to have springs that are as firm to, to damp the motions of the vehicle. This is pretty much what we see in a Mazda MX-5, for instance. It doesn't need to have a really rigid, firm suspension because it's so light. Lots of advantages when it comes to light weighting. And the, the platform that it's built on is just smaller, lighter, more compact, and more space efficient than some of those larger rear-wheel drive platforms, which logically pays a benefit there. The other thing that's worth noting is that um, the adaptive suspension systems that we find in a lot of these newer vehicles like this with active valves, they're a lot less expensive than Magnaride dampers. So Magnaride dampers have some benefits in certain applications, but when we're talking about a vehicle this size, it's not, not a huge one, if at all. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say realistically, when you're talking about the weight dimensions and responses of this car, you've got to realize you've got a vehicle that weighs approximately as much as a C8 Corvette, but it's actually got several inches less wheelbase than a C8 mm -hmm. Corvette. It's going to change direction very quickly. It's the type of vehicle that sounds and feels faster than it really is, even though 
it's probably going to hit zero to 60 in the mid three second range, which was supercar territory 20 years ago. I don't think you, I don't think you can have fun with more power on the road. I think you can have fun with more power on a track, but I think this is it in terms of being able to use the road. Yeah, there are some caveats, of course. So zero to 60 in about three, five, three, six, as I recall what our testing was, you'll have to stay tuned for the full review on the channel for that. Uh, But that only applies with launch control and launch control is not discrete, as we know. So (laughs) dual clutch transmission, it's roasting first gear, basically, just like you would with a manual to get a good launch. So you're at the stoplight, engage launch control, and the five-cylinder engine is just howling out the back with the exhaust in its loudest mode possible. Everyone knows. If you just want to stop at the stoplight, punch it, and go, then it's going to be about 4.1 seconds. So pretty significant drop in performance just for that. And it's all because of the way that this uh, drivetrain is done and the realistic constraints around a front wheel drive transaxle. I will say this, though, in my experience, the Audi direct injected turbo five has some of the lowest tangible uh, turbo lag of any engine I've ever driven. They're they're really punchy down low. And even Mm -hmm. in a high gear, when you're on the highway and you've got the thing in a cruising gear and all of a sudden you need to wood the throttle and pass for safety, these things sleep with one eye open. They can sneak up with you on how quick they are, especially once you get a few RPM into them. Yeah, turbo lag is significantly better, I would say, than the last two and a half liter turbo that I owned. You might be able to guess what that was in. At any rate, uh, last one that I owned definitely had some lag at at, at uh, lower RPMs. This is definitely better, but it's still there. So if you're in, say, sixth or seventh gear with the DCT and you just leave it in that gear and you lug it, you can definitely see how long it's going to take for the turbo to spool up. I think the advantage for the Audi engine is the combination of of their control systems for the engine and the dual clutch transmission. So it's going to blip the throttle, start trying to spin up that turbo as it's downshifting the gears. And then the gear changes are so fast and so crisp that also helps mask some of that. But again, you will notice it, I think, a bit more if you just are at a stoplight and you romp it versus using launch control. Because launch control is, of course, going to rev the engine up, going to get that turbo spinning. So the lag isn't going to be as big of a deal. But if you're just in regular drive mode, even if you try and and brake torque it, one foot on the pedal, one foot on the brake, it doesn't have a torque converter, so it's not going to do it. But it's not going to rev the engine up very high. So you are going to notice that initial lag and, and launch there. So the question then becomes, as we segue to our our feature presentation, is the RS3 in your dream garage? Oh, that is a good question. Um, I would say yes. How big does my dream garage get to be? Uh, (laughs) Let's say you've got five choices. You can have five five vehicles in the dream garage. Uh, Current production, though. I'm going to add that as a caveat. Uh, must be current production. Yes. Right. Okay. Uh, yes. RS three would be in the dream garage. Okay. The RS three would be in the dream garage. I am going to put a, and and I'm, I'm doing this because someone's gotta, but a Panos Avizano. So if you remember the Esperante from the two thousands, it came back in 2015. It was, uh, the last, a new Panos while Don was still co-running the company with his son, Dan. And everything that was an aesthetic shortcoming of the Esperante, the weird pursed lipped 
radiator cover, um, the lack of a convincing coupe roof line. All of that was fixed with the Avanzano, and they even had some success with it in World Challenge as a race car. So for me, the, the chance of having something completely custom made, stitching, hide choice, do you want wood? Do you want steel? Do you want aluminum? Do you want carbon? What color do you want it? You've got your choice of any engine you want. I would go with the LT4 option. There's a level of bespoke individuality there that, you know, you would associate with something like Morgan in, in the old mm -hmm. world. And that's exactly what you get with the Panos. But you also get a relatively recent and pretty cool and relevant racing history. Because, again, this is based on the Esperante and, you know, that one its class in Le Mans and in uh, Sebring, it had pole positions and fast laps all over the U.S. And I can't think of too many other cars that had like realistic success against Porsche and Ferrari over the last 20 years in GT racing. And this one being built in an old DOT salt storage shed in Georgia is probably the most interesting of those. Now, cars. quick point of clarification. Do we yeah. get to have a daily driver and the dream garage or no daily driver? Okay, I'm going to let you, you need a working vehicle for the farm. So I'm going to let you, you have a daily driver. And then, uh, and then do we have to pay for the maintenance on these Dream Garage cars? Or is that included? What, are you thinking of getting an Alpha? <laughs> just checking. Just any any of these. Any of Obviously, your, 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 custom, your custom built in a salt shed car is not going to be cheap when it goes wrong. Although I will say this, with the GM LT drivetrain, someone's going to be able to work on it. God help you if it's, you need blast, it's, though. It's all the other parts. <laughs> yeah, everything okay. No, you don't have to pay for maintenance. So if you wanted to get an okay, Alpha okay. Julia, then you're good. Got it. Did Got you want it. Alpha Julia? I would not, but I probably would Range Rover because, you know, you, you might need something a little luxury off-roady now and then. Okay. Well, you know, Range Rover plus extended warranty, you're good. Yeah. Right. And I, I would Range Rover rather than Cullinan or Bentiaga because... You know, they those fly a little high on the radar. Let's just say that they're they're a little ostentatious, and I would prefer to be just a tiny bit more discreet. Yeah, I was in Dubai last November, and at one point, five Cullinans passed me in the space of about 120 seconds. So I guess it this is like our North American anonymous dream car garage over in Dubai. You can have whatever you want, um, but I would put something. I, I would have something that is just pure stupid fun. And hugely impractical. The late Fiat 500e, and I would basically treat that as my go-kart. It has no purpose other than just flat to the floor, pedal down driving at the limit of adhesion with Firestone minimal rolling resistance tires. Uh, and it's a car that can feel absolutely manic. It's the closest thing you can get today to like the original 1983 Mark One GTI like in terms of how it feels without actually being fast for 80 miles, you're going to be smiling. That's not a, that's not too bad of a choice. Uh, I would probably go for something along the lines of a Corvette. I have to admit okay. uh, they're just a good balance of things, relatively easy to keep around. Lots of fun. I, toyed with the idea of thinking 911 but that seems so contrite seems so so normative somehow yeah you don't strike me as 
<laughs> I uh, I love the 911. It is perfection, but um, everybody's got one. What about like an older 911? Current production, right? It's got to be current. Well, production. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I guess I cheated a bit with the 500e. Um, yeah, okay. You know, well, there there's a there's a there's a 500 in Europe, so that could qualify. But if you get the new one. Fun fact, when I was at the New York Auto Show, the Stellantis people had like a fleet of them on hand. They said they were gathering opinions to be continued. Huh. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if they needed to shift a few EV credits here and there that they'd bring it back for a limited one time only thing. You never know. I don't know. Next time a refinery blows up, though, who knows? People might actually want them. Okay, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna add a vet too. Um, I'm gonna put a vet in the garage, and I'm gonna go with the C8 convertible because my big gripe with vet convertibles forever has been that they're not as attractive as the coupes. But the current C8 convertible is almost indistinguishable, and frankly, it might even have a slightly better roofline than the coupe. The only thing you lose is the ability to see the engine, which is kind of cool, but not so cool that I couldn't live without it. Huh. Okay. Uh, I would F450 because why not? <laughs> Here it comes. Here it comes. If you could, if you could get, and I believe they still exist, the standard cab long bed F450, I would do that. That's cowboy. That's actually pretty cool. That's the kind of vehicle you never see anymore unless you're like a greenskeeper. Um, okay. Um, I'm going to. I'm going to go with a Pacifica hybrid. I'm going with a Pacifica and wow. I'm going with a hybrid version of the Pacifica. And I guess I may as well max out because it's a dream garage hybrid pinnacle for 60 grand with or without a federal credit. I don't think there's anything more comfortable for long distance driving. If you've got a whole stuff and people. It's basically going to ride like a car. It's very quiet. Fuel economy is decent, even when it's not in EV mode. Um, uh, are you sure we haven't been suddenly sponsored by Chrysler? Or have oh. you turned into a Midwestern soccer mom when I wasn't looking? I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, <laughs> brush, I'm brushing up on my middle age skills. I'm approaching 40. So maybe I'm, I'm just hitting all I'm, that. Yeah, I'm just having troubles wrapping around this whole like minivan in a dream garage thing. That's not a you know, a uh, thousand horsepower Honda Odyssey conversion minivan thing. Well, since it's a dream garage, like I guess elephant crate engine and Pacifica, there you go. Dump <laughs> the hybrid Chrysler, please. This has to happen. There needs to be a Hellcat Pacifica before we're done and dead. This must happen. <laughs> Render my appeal thusly. Okay. Uh, uh, maybe that was, th that was the daily driver. We were talking about having a daily driver. That's going to be mine. Okay. Do you want to add, or was it the 450 long bed short cab? Uh, I would my last space would be occupied by at this point, I think a Mercedes EQS. I think gotta, I think I'd put that in there. I, I know it's heresy. Because some people think it's bat crazy ugly, but I might i7 instead of the EQS. Let's see what if I when I get to drive one. I don't know, but um, I do like the look of the i7, and I love the way the EQS drives. So uh, one of those. Can I be totally honest? As a child of the cab forward nineties, I kind of like the way the EQS looks. I, I kind of like it too, <laughs> but it definitely gives me Dodge and Trepid vibes. Oh yeah. Without a doubt, Chrysler LH cars all the way. 
Um, okay, actually, I don't disagree with that. Um, let's see, what else could I throw out there? The hugely underrated Lexus LC, and I would say this is like an Aston Martin that's not going to break, and I would say it looks as good as anything Aston's currently making. Like, it's, it looks like a show car. It's intact mm -hmm. from the show car stand. So, yeah, LC500. It sounds good. It looks good. It's not a sports car, but it's not a bad way to go long distance with one friend. Yeah, it's more like a Grand Tourer. My problem with most of the exotics, I mean, and Aston is honestly included in this group, even though they've, they've you know, dabbled with not being an exotic, is their their infotainment stuff is just bad. Um it be uh, Bentley and and Rolls have this problem too, which blows my mind because they're they're owned by Volkswagen and BMW respectively. And so, how can you sell a four hundred thousand dollar car with an infotainment system and software that's not one generation old or two generations old, but like four or five generations old? I still don't understand how that's acceptable to that crowd, but somehow it is, and it would irk me every day driving it. I know someone that has a uh, a Bentley uh, sorry a uh, a Phantom sorry Rolls-Royce and I asked him I said how is it that you're okay driving the Phantom and then hopping from there into your 6 series that has a better and more recent BMW system and obviously they're the same the same company um and how does this not bother you at all and they didn't really have a good answer, which is telling. Yeah, well, with the Lexus LC, you have the worst of the worst. It's like the previous Lexus trackpad interface. My attitude there, and I've I've been all over those cars, is just don't touch it. Just, yeah. just stay away from it. Pretend it's not there. When you're in the LC, the materials and the way they're built, it's really attractive. You just need to stay the hell away from any kind of infotainment technology. Try to pair devices as little as possible. Don't touch the trackpad. It does CarPlay. Yeah, I mean, you can get that far and you're good. Preset the class. The screen's box. big. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you must sign up for like, you know, Sirius XM and, and, and you're good. Just interact with it as little as possible. Because if you do try to like mm -hmm. write letters on that trackpad while you're driving, you will have no defense in court. True. But like... Uh, a a Rolls Royce Ghost, which we drove not that long ago, a Nissan Versa's got a bigger screen than it, and the software looks more modern than it. How is it that the cheapest thing in America can have a better infotainment experience than one of the most expensive things on wheels that you can buy? Well, I mean, look, maybe this is a bigger deal now. Look, <laughs> the crackdown has begun. The VW CEO was allegedly dismissed because of problems with software. Maybe the industry is waking up. I will admit uh, in my my rave of the RS3 that Audi MMI, well, once groundbreaking, is starting to feel pretty old. You know, I get the same feeling about Audi interiors. Maybe back in 2008, they were the hottest thing going, but I don't feel like they're head and shoulders above the rest of the industry anymore. Like, I don't sit inside yeah. an Audi and feel like I'm in the midst of an exhibition of modern art. Like, Ben's interiors are great now. Lexus interiors, if... The infotainment's infuriating, the pieces are nice, and the materials are great. Audi doesn't have that edge anymore, and Volkswagen doesn't either. To be honest, when I look back on it, I never found Audi's interiors somehow head and shoulders above the other Germans. 
other than when Mercedes went through their nasty, nasty face where everything on the inside was horrific. Uh, aside from that, I honestly, the Audi models were pretty comparable in terms of materials and parts quality to BMWs. They definitely had a distinctive style that has been copied and rehashed and, and modified here by some other car companies. But I honestly don't think that the parts were ever that much nicer. Um, and I think for the RS3, it's less of a problem than it is for an A8 or an A6, etc. In those vehicles, I could see, you know, it's getting a little stale, whatever. RS3, it's so small and relatively inexpensive. And your competition is Integra and Lexus UX in that same category and BMW 2 Series. It's, it shows, I think it still shows pretty well. For me, I think it's just the software. The software is definitely sluggish and the screen is small in pretty much every Audi. That's a common complaint. The screens are small. The software is a little sluggish. It does have the wow factor of Google Maps on the instrument cluster, which so few companies have imitated. It blows my mind because it really looks good. But outside of the that splash and the schnaz there, if you don't pay for your subscription, you don't get it, by the way. Uh, the rest of the software is not feeling as fresh. And I'm going to put a bow on my dream garage with the car I would buy as a collector piece. The Camaro ZL1 1LE. The one that nobody bought because it was god-awful punishing with spool valve shocks and urethane bushings and a people <laughs> track setup. There are a lot of ZL1s out there relative to 1LEs. The ZL1 1LE is probably going to be the closest thing you can get in the current Camaro lineup to the original ZL1 when they made 69 of them and no one bought them because the thing was too expensive and too brutal for daily use on the road. And I honestly think there are going to be so few of these in the future. It's not going to be like GNX collectible, but the next best thing. Hmm. Okay, I could see that. Everyone says he's that hardcore, but no one really is that hardcore. The if guy, you had a, if you had five other car, four other cars to play with, it's it's okay because you don't have to drive it every day. Yeah, well, that, that's the thing. I just think that most guys looking at a ZL1 are not going to check that box for the $7,500 option that turns the car into a genuine track weapon because they don't need 300 pounds of downforce at 150 miles an hour, and they don't need the ride that comes with it, and they don't need the tire and suspension package that comes with it. Um, also, frankly, this sixth-generation Camaro has not been the sales sensation that the Transformers-powered fifth-generation was, yeah. and there are fewer of them in general. So I think you take the less popular generation, the more expensive ZL1, you add the unbearable 1LE package, and you've got, like, muscle car nirvana for 20 years from now. I hope so, but uh, I would never do it. <laughs> So as a parting shot, what do we think about Cadillac going well upmarket? Celestic, $300,000. It's going to be a Rolls-Royce Bentley rival. Is it going to work within the limited scope of what is expected of it? I am really intrigued because Cadillac is solidly calling it a sedan. It has a trunk. Um, part of me expected it to be crossover-like, more... Bentley, Bentayga, Cadillac, or a Rolls-Royce Cullinan kind of thing, which 
maybe would have made more sense. But if Cla- if Cadillac wants to go back to their roots to this classic big luxury sedan, then I can see how that would work with the Celestic. I like the look. I really wonder if it's going to stick close to the show car. The show car does look like it could be uh, street legal as far as lighting regulations and pedestrian impact stuff. It looks like it could be compliant. What we don't know exactly is what's going on underneath the skin. Is this also going to get one of GM's huge battery packs? Is this going to be the Ultium vehicle with 500 range miles of range, 600 miles of range, something crazy and industry leading, which I would really want if I was going to pay that amount for it, because otherwise you could just get a lucid and drive 500 miles. Um, So I'm really intrigued. Also, who's going to buy it? Who is their demographic for this? I haven't heard them peep at all about what they think their potential customer looks like. One of the challenges is that it really appeals to people who have a lot of money and a love for history. Uh, who are going to say this is the 57 to 58 Series 70 Eldorado Brome or the 1930 V16 come back to life. And it really is like the successor to those vehicles in terms of the price point. The 58 Eldorado Brome was $14,000, which even in adjusted money isn't 300000 which is what they're talking about with the Celestic. Um, but it is that sort of sense that you're buying something that costs more than a house and you know more than some... Bentley models. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. about size. Assuming the Cadillac Escala concept car is going to be the basis for the Celestic as a platform, the Escala was on a 127-inch wheelbase, and it was about 210, 211 inches long, which is not the size of any current Rolls-Royce, whether it's the Ghost or the Phantom. Those are both bigger. It is about the size of the Flying Spur. So if you're talking about Bentley The Flying Spur is 126 inches of wheelbase, and it's about 209 inches long. So in size terms, we're talking about that, but it is a liftback, and it's only a four-seater, which does make it a bit different from any current super high-end sedan. Um, And one of the reasons it's a four-seater, and this may bear on how much of the Ultium platform it really ports over, but it seems like the center console is going to house most of the battery. So both from a packaging standpoint and a battery Mm -hmm. standpoint, that's interesting to me because I don't know that you can fit the Hummer EV's 212 kilowatt hour battery into a center spline. Like that's interesting. Right. And I'm going to go ahead and guess that it's going to have batteries underneath as well. But we it remains to be seen because you could not package enough batteries just in the center spline of a car to make it have the range you want. It's just not feasible from a packaging standpoint. But I could see them adding additional modules there, doing a la Volvo, where there's, you know, batteries in that center console, etc. A good corollary would be the Volvo lineup. We take a look at they package about 18 kilowatt hours now in a a tunnel that is pretty large and pretty tall and spans about two thirds of the interior in a XC60 or S90. And in S90, it actually spans uh, 75% of the interior, something like that. So if you stretch out that and you say, maybe that's double, maybe we're packing 40 kilowatt hours in that space. That's really not enough for a luxury EV. So I'm going to go ahead and guess that their battery is stashed somewhere else too. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say that it's going to be a combination of the center spline, 
then there's going to be some sort of a tiered arrangement of the seats with the back seats elevated somewhat on top of the battery pack. And then it has a flat load floor underneath the lift back. And I think there's going to be a large battery catch there as well. Uh, they mm -hmm. might wind up with a fairly substantial rear weight bias in this vehicle just because that's where it seems there's space to store the batteries unless they're planning to use all the volume under the hood. And there's not going to be much because it's a relatively low, almost, it's, it's an almost, if you look at the dash to axle ratio, they're going for a long, low hood, and there's not going to be a lot of volume in there once you account for the motor or motors right. up front. So I can see a lot of the batteries being basically uh, from the midsection back. It's a fascinating vehicle. I think the ultimate appeal is going to be the customizable element, um, the ability to really tailor it, because the Warren Technical Center, where this is being hand-built, is emphatically not a production facility. Right. They're, they're spending $81 million to modify Warren for production of this car. And $81 million from a production engineering standpoint is nothing. Uh, you know, that's a few robots in an industrial scale factory. Yeah. So they are saying uh, most estimates here are putting it at 300 miles of range in this, in these images that I've, I've found here. That center console is is pretty contiguous, so I could see them sticking some batteries in there. And that load floor in the cargo is pretty high, so definitely could be some batteries back there too. Um, but they have been able to package batteries pretty nicely for the Lyric. So Lyric is not terribly high off the ground. I could see how it could still have this profile and have, you know, a more or less a, a, a battery pack underneath the vehicle there as well. I think this will be interesting because now we're moving away from the EV as the rocket sled, this era when, you know, basically we marveled at every new iteration of electric vehicles and how quick they were. This is not, this could, it's going to be quick the way EVs are. This is not going to be a car that sells on the strength of, you know, some claim to being the fastest EV sedan or fastest sedan in the world. It's going to have to sell on merits. And there is currently a huge price gap between the $150,000 Escalade V and this $300,000 Celestic. So I do think that it's going to sell because yeah. it's beautiful, because it's rare, and because people are really going to be addicted to this notion that you can customize everything down to the contrasting stitching of the seat. But I just don't yeah. think Cadillac dealers are set up to sell a car like this. I think the single biggest problem is that a lot of Cadillac dealers feel like Chevrolet dealers, and Chevrolet dealers are miserable. That's probably true. It makes me wonder how much of this is going to be able to be done either online or through some sort of custom concierge, which is allowable within the dealer network system. I mean, they could just be a funnel, a, an order funnel to the dealer. So it is possible that something like that could be constructed for Celestic, where you wouldn't have to go to a dealer and someone would come to your home and deal with the options and and things that you can and can run through different samples of fabric, et cetera. That's totally doable and could still be delivered through a dealer. I do kind of wonder about that price tag in a way because BMW and Mercedes uh, have always had troubles pushing that upper boundary with price tag, which is why Mercedes resurrected Maybach, which didn't work as a separate brand. Now they've kind of pulled it in. It's why BMW bought Rolls-Royce and why Volkswagen bought Bentley because Audi just can't get there. There are these mid-level luxury brands, which honestly Cadillac has struggled to imitate. Cadillac is is has a decent average transaction price because of Escalade, but outside of Escalade, 
they have troubles competing with Mercedes and with BMW on more expensive models. And that's in a very, very much smaller <laughs> price tag segment than what we're talking about with Celestic. Um, but I would assume that there is enough interest in something bespoke and rare and unique that this could work if done right. Yeah, if they keep the volume really low, then it could it could be successful. Like, I would not be shocked if they look at the 704 units of the Eldorado Brome built from 57 to 58, and they said, you know what, that's a good number. Um, there's a lot of commonality with the electrical yeah. architecture, the battery technology. It's not going to cost us a lot of engineering dollars to develop this relative right. to what it would be as a bespoke platform. We're going to put all the money into making this composite bodied, fully customizable, low volume and tailorable. Um, I, I think the real question is, what do they do to build up the you know, hundred, dollars $200,000 Cadillac. Because back in the 50s, when the Eldorado Brome was on the market, there were five, six, seven thousand dollars $7,000 Cadillacs you could get into, and no one batted an eye about paying that kind of money, even when a house in Levittown cost $5,700. Cadillac had credibility in the high end of the market back then, when there was no Mercedes-Benz in the mass right. market. Rolls-Royce and Bentley were oddities brought in by specialist importers, and Lincoln was, you know, and also ran in the U.S. luxury market. So I feel yeah. like it has more to prove below the level of the Celestic, which I think is going to be a success um, in the limited terms that they define for its success. The question is, what does it do to make its crossover SUVs feel less cheap? That is the real challenge. Yeah, we don't know. It's that is a challenge. Completely unknown. Yeah, that is a challenge for another day. But Alex, yeah. question. Will you review the Celestic when it comes out, even though they're probably only going to make a few hundred of them a year? I don't know. Honestly, uh, I would bet that it's going to be a long time until I get to drive a Celestic. That's my guess. But who knows what the future holds? So <laughs> you, you have you have no 10,000 unit ethical qualms about reviewing this as a low volume vehicle. I would, but. I could see, depending on how it goes, that it could have importance, industry importance beyond its relatively low volume. Okay, I could see that. Maybe or maybe not. It sort of, it really would depend. Um, I might drive it at an event. That's probably where it will happen. Is is it some sort of communal event? That's where I've, most of the Rolls Royces and Bentleys that I've driven have been media association events where they're there because I don't seek them. Um, they just. They're not not things anybody buys. That's fair. That's the problem. Speaking of things people buy, this will be for our next riveting episode, but we're going to talk about EVs, their proliferation in the market both here and abroad, whether we should take them seriously as mass market cars in the here and now, or whether they are more potential. That will be for a future episode of the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast. I'm Tim. He's Alex. Thanks for logging on. See all of you later. Bye.